Well, if you would, turn back with me in your Bibles to Psalm 130 as we gaze upon that text over the next many minutes together. Years ago, Carl Truman wrote an essay which he called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What Can Miserable Christians Sing? His point was to address the kinds of songs that churches nowadays sing. He noted that many churches have a diet of unremitting, jolly choruses. He contrasted that with the Psalms, which seemed to offer a different model, at least a varied model. Many of the Psalms, as you know, lament, they mourn, and they cry out. They give us language for some of our deepest agonies of the soul, which we all face from time to time. So Truman suggests a diet of unremitting, jolly choruses inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation, which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. What can miserable Christians sing? Well, miserable Christians should have something to sing that resonates with them when they come to church on Sunday morning. Did you know it's okay to come to church miserable? We hope that we sing songs that reflect the Psalms and, of course, reflect reality. We all have sin and sorrow of various kinds. It's okay to come to church miserable. But did you also know that you're not supposed to stay miserable? You're not supposed to stay miserable. The Psalms model this as well. They often address us at our lowest point. But except for just a couple of instances which are exceptions, they seek to move us from that lowest point. They seek to raise us up. And of course, the Bible as a whole offers us so much more than just sympathy or group pity parties. The Bible, yes, gives us real sympathy, but the Bible can at times lift us up to almost heaven itself. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 130, starts very low and it rises very high. You may have noticed that as we read it this morning and sang Luther's hymn based on it. It literally begins with the depths in verse 1. And then just a half a dozen or so verses later, it is jumping through the roof. It is to the moon. I suspect most of us here today are somewhere between the depths and the moon. Wherever you are then, this psalm can pick you up along the way and take you on a ride. A ride that has been famously memorable for many famous saints of old. Psalm 130 was the favorite psalm of St. Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. It had a big impact on the Puritan John Owen who wrote a 320-page book on these eight verses. For John Wesley, Psalm 130 was part of his conversion story. So hopefully that grabs your attention. 
if not just for the simple fact that Psalm 130 is God's most holy word, and it's his word to us today. The psalm breaks up rather neatly. There are four parts to it, two verses for each part, and within each of these four parts, there are a couple lines of poetry. We'll try to capture all that with just a couple of words for each of these four parts. For example, point number one, there is crying and pleading in verses one and two. Crying and pleading. It is the crying and pleading from one who finds himself in the depths. He's crying out from the depths to the Lord. The depths. Picture a sailor or a fisherman lost at sea, alone, reeling upon the waves, and at times swept under the waves. No one around, no one to help, no one to call out to except the Lord. Psalm 69 similarly talks about, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. The depths in Scripture are a metaphor for trouble. Not literal seas and waves, but a metaphor for all different kinds of trouble, whether that's enemies or depression or death. Imagine that picture of being out of the sea and being under the waves. It's a picture of one being brought low. He's in trouble. There's no help, no way of escape, and about to die. And from that position, he cries out. When you find yourself in the depths, remember, cry out. I cry to you, O Lord, and he pleads with God to hear, verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. That's bold faith. Yes, it's a desperate situation. Yes, he's singularly focused on the Lord by force because there's no one else to help. But how bold that faith is that says, hear my voice. An imperative, the same kind of language that God uses when he commands us, when he tells us to do something. The psalmist here, boldly, in faith, tells God what to do because God has already said what he would do. He will listen. He pleads with God for mercy. For mercy. Now, mercy, in other psalms, could be the same thing as asking God for help or intervention or provision or protection. Mercy in the Bible can be physical or spiritual. But by verse 3 of our psalm, it becomes very clear what kind of mercy he needs. It's not just protection or provision. It's not external. He needs mercy as in salvation. He cries out essentially, have mercy upon my sin and my guilt. It's a psalm about finding forgiveness. Now that's important for us because as we've been studying these psalms of ascents from Psalm 120 to 134, this one stands out. The previous psalms have occasionally spoken of trouble, threat, or problem, or a concern, and they've called on the Lord for help and intervention. But the problem 
the concern, the threat was always out there. Someone else, it's external. Psalm 130 begins with the familiar note of trouble and concern and calling out to the Lord to intervene. And as it begins, from the depths I cry, you don't know what the depths are. Could it be slavery or a dangerous journey or threatening enemies or simple mockery? It's none of those. For the first time in the Psalms of Ascents, the trouble is within The problem is himself. We have seen the enemy, and it is us. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. You see similar language talking about sin in Psalm 88. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. This is the prayer of a man who's crying and pleading with the Lord to have mercy. Secondly, he's asking and believing in verses 3 to 4. He's asking and believing. He ponders his need for mercy in verse 3 with this question, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He imagines imagines innumerable marks on his heavenly account if God would keep track. And God does keep track. He knows that. We know that. God does know. He sees all. And so he reasons, if the Lord keeps track of our sins, would anyone be good enough to stand? Would I be good enough to stand before the Lord? This is courtroom language. If iniquities were kept track of, and we know that they are, would anyone stand at that judgment? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no, none are righteous, no, not one. When's the last time you pondered what sin is, how great and how many are your sins, and what kind of problem this causes for you before a holy God if he doesn't give mercy? When's the last time you pondered that? What is sin? Here it's called iniquity. Literally, the Hebrew word means to bend, to distort, to be crooked and to go crookedly in any action or thought or desire. That's what sin is. That's what iniquity is. And here, this word iniquity also implies guilt, condemnation, all that in this one word. That's what sin is. How many are your sins? Well, I don't know. And neither do you. I know that for you and for me, our sins are too many to count or even to comprehend. Because we were born into sin, that is, born into a movement of rebellion against our good and kind creator, everything we do, no matter how good or how sweet it looks, it's tainted with sin. It's like, it's like you got paint, red paint on your hands, 
trying to clean up a room. Everything you touch, no matter how much you try to clean, it, it gets everywhere. It touches everything. The scriptures tell us that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. We're told that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It's, a mat, it's unthinkable to comprehend. What if you were shown or told? What if an account was given of every time in your whole life you've ever lusted? I think it would be more than we could imagine. I think it would be more sickening than we wish to remember. What if every moment of covetousness, wanting someone else's stuff, was laid before you, example after example after example? What if God was able to show you in every instance what was going on in your heart and how that desire for that thing blasphemed him or replaced him? What about those moments when you've done something good? What if you could see with exact detail the frequency and the severity of impure motives? What if every time you've ever used God or religious things like prayer or Bible knowledge to impress people was shown to you? Shown to you to be what it is. Piled up instance after instance before you. Your complaints. Your careless words. Your hidden anger. Your bitterness. Your resentment. Gossip. Indifference to the things of the Lord. Can you imagine? Or think of this analogy. What if there was this omniscient municipal judge whom you stood before for a speeding ticket. And because he's omniscient, he can pull out the evidence of the past. What if he could lay out as evidence, as a track record for you, every single time you've ever sped, not ever got caught, but every time you've ever exceeded the speed limit, he laid it out and said, this is who you are. Now, I, I'm not dealing right now about whether speeding is sin or not or whether it's always a sin. This is just an analogy. But imagine the trouble you'd be in with the local law if your speeding, every single instance of it, were documented and held against you. And what if the same were true, that before God, a God who knows infinitely more than any municipal judge, it was documented by God, recorded, who knows the inside from the outside, Every time, in every way, you ever went astray from him in his commands or, his, or actions or, or, or thoughts or, or desires. No courtroom could contain the amount of evidence if it were physical and tangible. We don't talk like that these days. It's easy for us to excuse our sin today by simply saying everyone sins. But the Bible agrees with you when you say that. We know everyone sins. That's the problem that Jesus came to address and the Bible is so concerned about. 
You can try to excuse your sin by thinking about relative goodness, how there's always someone worse than you, how you're probably slightly ahead of a curve based on your estimate of things. But the Bible would agree with that as well. Sin is falling short, we sometimes say. That's the literal definition of the Greek word for sin. So imagine that we have the responsibility, every one of us, to jump from San Francisco to Hawaii. And some people would jump 10 feet. Some people would jump 3 feet in the Pacific. But we would all fall short. Relative righteousness doesn't get us anywhere. You can think that God is going to be a pushover when push comes to shove. You can remember your parents grounding you for the summer once. And then two weeks in, they said, ah, good enough. You've been pretty good. Sorry, I overreacted. And maybe you think of God that way, that he says X, Y, and Z in the Bible and says he will do A, B, and C But when we stand before him, he's got to be nicer than our parents were in the summer of 86, right? I googled this week how to deal with guilty feelings, according to a few different psychology and self-help websites. Here are some things that they suggest. Write these down. No, don't. Don't bother. (laughs) You can guess what they'd say. Forgive yourself. Make amends as soon as possible. Start a journal. I always feel guilty when I plan to start a journal because I don't do it so well, so I don't know about that one, but accept something you did wrong, but move on. Learn from your behaviors. Recognize that perfection doesn't exist in anyone. Or, according to an article on Oprah.com, tell yourself, guilt is not a natural or healthy experience. It serves no constructive purpose. Guilt keeps you from being honest with yourself and others. Well, friend, that is not the wisdom of Psalm 130. If that's your idea of dealing with guilt, you're going to have to change it if you're going to embrace this book and the God of it. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He prayed, out of the depths of my sin and guilt and trouble, I call out to you. Please hear my pleas for mercy. This morning, will you join with the psalmist in understanding and feeling the weight and the severity, and the number, and the problem of your sins before a holy God. Have you ever done that? Because you won't begin to call out to him from the depths unless you first understand the deep waters that you're in. This is basic to Christianity. It's fundamental to the Bible. It's essential to finding mercy. It starts with understanding Our need for mercy. We must come to mourn our sin before we'll cry out for mercy. This morning, courageously and in faith, ponder your plight before the Lord. Courageously and in faith, ponder the severity of the problem of multiplied sins before a holy God who knows all.
And who will reckon it all? He will. But then turn a corner. Turn a corner to faith. Verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Now there is no forgiveness for those who won't begin to realize what sin is. And how great their sin is. And that they can bring it to God. You have to agree with God about these things. About your problem. And that it's you. But for those who will begin to agree with God about their sin. And courageously ponder their sin before him. And boldly lay it bare before him. To come humbly, almost nakedly. To give him your sin and cry out from the depths of guilt and trouble. For those, there is forgiveness. I think of that parable in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus told. He told it because he said some were self-righteous, trusting in themselves. And so he describes this tax collector who goes to the wall to pray. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, on the other hand, was standing far off from the wall. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus explains, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home down to his house that day justified and not the other man. Which one are you? Are you self-righteous, trusting in yourself, comparing yourself to others, elevating yourself, looking down upon others? Or do you have enough sense of your sin that you know you don't just walk up willy-nilly to this God, head down, far off. And yet you also have enough understanding of the kind of God this is that you can come to him and you can say, be merciful to me, a sinner. I find it breathtaking how simply and profoundly it's put both in Luke 18 and in our psalm. The man said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had nothing else to claim, nothing else to lean upon, nothing else to offer to the Lord. He's a sinner who calls out. And that man went home justified right then. The man in Psalm 130 called out from the depths of guilt and sin. He pondered how many are his sins And then in a moment, reminded himself, but with you, with the Lord, there is forgiveness. How simple, how profound. Charles Spurgeon said, it is so simple men cannot believe it's true. If I were to bid you to take off your shoes and run from here to York, that you would be saved, you would do it at once. But when it's nothing but the words, believe and live, It's too easy for proud hearts to do. God has made the gospel too plain and too simple to suit proud hearts. So may God soften your heart. And when he does, 
It not only results in faith and forgiveness, but also fear. Yes, fear. At least a certain kind of fear. Verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Did that catch you by surprise when we read through it? Did it feel a bit like a, a speedy, uh, what are those called? It? Speed block? What are they called? Speed bump. A little speed bump there, isn't it? You wouldn't expect it to say, with you there is forgiveness that you'd be feared, that you'd be adored, that you'd be thanked, that you'd be liked, that you'd be worshipped. But actually, forgiveness and fear or God's kindness and the awe of him go hand in hand. We saw it a few weeks ago in Psalm 128. Blessed or happy is the man who fears you. Or Jeremiah 33, they will fear and tremble, God says, because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide. Good and prosperity will cause them to fear and tremble. Our hymns teach us this. Amazing grace. It has those lines, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace taught me to fear. And yet the next line of amazing grace, "'And grace my fears relieved.'" How can that be that grace can both, both teach us to fear and deliver us from fear? Well, it's talking about two different kinds of fears. One that is natural when sinners are before a holy God without mercy. And one that is in response and in relationship with the God who forgives and grants mercy. In our psalm, the fears of the depths of the trouble from his sin was relieved when he got to verse 4. However, having that full forgiveness caused him to stand in awe and to teach that to others. When we begin to realize the extent of our sin and rebellion and guilt and trouble before him and begin to see that he can forgive with just a word, well, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Or you could think of Psalm 139, those famous lines David said there, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We could borrow some of those words for our psalm and just say, we are fearfully and wonderfully saved. It leads to fear. Now thirdly, there's waiting and watching in our psalm. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. He waits. And that's curious too, like fear. This is another speed bump, I suspect, for some. Why would he wait? He's already received forgiveness. And some think that he maybe is waiting for more assurance or confidence about that forgiveness. I think that's already settled by verse 4. I think instead this is a different kind of waiting. It's the word waiting that throws us off. When we think of waiting, we only think of it in terms of chronology, in time. 
like a man waits for his wife or like a, a couple waits to get married or you wait for the check to come in the mail. But the word in Hebrew can also mean that and seeking, longing, being still before and trusting. You want to know what waiting is in our psalm? Well, just look at the second half of verse 5 where there's a parallel. And in his word, I hope. Waiting on God means looking to his word for hope even while we wait for him to do more. And we wait, really, for him to give us more of himself. That's why it says we don't just wait on the Lord, we wait for him. This is the Christian life. If we just review our psalm, this is the Christian life. To know our sins and the problem of our sins and to keep feeling our need for him, keep crying out for mercy, laying it bare before him, believing that with him there is forgiveness, and then in light of that, walking in holy fear and awe before him. Waiting on him, longing for him, seeking him, putting our hope in his word. And keep trying to do that over and over and over. It's like the watchmen who keep watch at night, verse 6 tells us about. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen do for the morning. Watchmen want the morning to come. I've never been in charge of a whole midnight's watch or you know from midnight to six or something like that I imagine it's not an easy job I imagine that most watchmen are in the dark and there's something unknown about the dark their job though is to stay awake to watch to wait and they must trust that even though they can't see what's around them very much morning's coming they may not know exactly when. We live in a day of watches. And they could, tell star, they could tell time generally from stars in ancient times, but generally. And so they wouldn't know like we do. I, get off at six, seven minutes from now. Can't wait. No, generally. They, they, don't, they don't see the sunrise as it's down tucked below and yet starting to work its way up how long will it be before morning comes they may not know exactly but they have the certainty that morning will come there's longing seeking trusting waiting and expectancy and again all that through God's word in his word I hope now lastly there is encouraging and exalting that goes on in verse 7 and 8 encouraging and exalting, he encourages all Israel to hope in the Lord. For with the Lord their steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Did you notice that verses 1 through 6 are all personal and private? It's about one guy and his God with his sins and the forgiveness that he grants. But now in verses 7 and 8, this hope that he had, this fear and faith and forgiveness, it gets contagious. He looks to pass it off to others. He throws out a welcome mat. 
He invites them to know the same love. Notice how the words for salvation and forgiveness are multiplied at the end of the psalm. With the Lord there is steadfast love, covenant love. With him is plentiful redemption, more than enough redemption. Not just forgiveness for now, or forgiveness for certain sins, or forgiveness until we'll see. Plentiful redemption, more than enough. He will redeem this man from all his iniquities, and he can redeem all Israel and all God's people from all their iniquities. So as he invites others and encourages them in this hope, he also exalts as he does so. Do you know that word exalt? It's like exalt with an A, except exalt with a U. I know it sounds like I'm saying the same word. Exalting with a U is, it is like exalting God, but there's a, a special emphasis put on the emotion of it, uh, on the experience of it. He's exalting as he invites and encourages others. I think of Romans 10, where Paul talks about how beautiful the feet are those who bring good tidings. You might know the word picture that's alluding to. In old days, there'd be a battlefield far away, and someone would be on the watch looking for the messenger to come home with the report. They would be able to tell in most cases whether that messenger came with good news or bad news simply by the countenance and the kind of run that the messenger had. If there was victory in the news, then the chest was high and the stride was long. And of course, if it was bad news, then there was a slouch. And Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We Christian messengers... We carry good news, and we should carry it like those who exalt in it. You may have come here this morning miserable. God doesn't want you to stay there. You may only move one little inch. Will you? There's a great progression in our psalm from the depths to the mountaintop. From no one around and maybe even God doesn't hear to let me tell the whole world what he's done for my soul and what he can do for you. Where are you right now in that progression? I bet some here need to go back to the beginning of this psalm even though we've spent a good deal of time in it this morning. You need to go back to the beginning, not because you've lost your salvation and need to start over, but because, as a Christian, you've become complacent with your sin. Christian, are you far too used to your salvation? Is it just a given these days? Maybe the first three verses of our psalm were at one time something you wrestled with and dealt with and could identify with experientially, but that was so long ago. And when you sin now, maybe you talk to the Lord about it like an Englishman apologizes for being too close or bumping into someone upon the street. Oh, sorry. 
Don't forget that Martin Luther's 95 theses had this as the very first one, that all of life is to be one of repentance. We never really get out of verses 1 through 3. When's the last time God showed you something of how dark and ugly your sin is? How ridiculously persistent and stubborn your will is. And he showed you that not because he wants to hang it over your head or for you to walk in shame, but so that it contrasts with his glorious grace. Like a diamond that's laid upon a black cloth in a jewelry store. The black cloth is there for contrast and it's good sometimes the Lord shows us our sin and helps us to cry out from the deep so that we know with him is still forgiveness even for this. Praise be to God. Or maybe you're a Christian who's stuck in verses 1 through 3. Maybe you know verses 1 through 3 a little too well in that you've never, you never turn the corner when you ponder your sin. You never get to verse 4, but with him there's forgiveness, let alone to the mountaintop of verse 7 and 8. Be careful. Be careful. There is a kind of sin watching and sin mourning that almost flogs the self in order to earn the righteousness of God. But you can't earn it. You know that. Not even with repentance. Not even with sorrow from sin. If that's you this morning, then you take one more good look at yourself and then you take a thousand good looks at Jesus. And know which way you tend to go. Do you tend to forget verses 1 through 3? And salvation's a given. What's next? Who's playing this afternoon? Or do you tend to live in verses 1 through 3? If it's the latter, don't let your guilt and weak conscience impugn his marvelous grace, which covers all your sins. Psalm 130, as much as any other psalm, tells us that God forgives but it doesn't exactly say how he forgives. It says that he forgives. It doesn't say how he forgives. And that sort of raises a theological question if we're thinking whole Bible about all this stuff. How does God forgive? What does he do with those iniquities? Where do the marks go? We know he knows about them. Does he put them under a rug? Does he have a compactor up there? Does he, does he recycle sins or does he ball them up and throw them to Pluto like Superman did with the Eiffel Tower and the bomb on it? No, none of that. All this was pointing ahead and assuming the justice being met in a righteous Savior who would pay for sins. This is how God can redeem all our iniquities. Here's the payment that was made for the plentiful redemption of Psalm 130. My sin? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. And he has he shed his own blood for my soul. He's the just and the justifier. It's through his blood that we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You want to see how great your sin is and you want to see how deep and great his love is. Look at the cross of Jesus. That's what it took to redeem you and me. That's what God did to redeem you and me. You want assurance? Look to the promises of Psalm 130, the example that Psalm 130 shares for us. And look to the cross where Jesus said, it is finished. If you're not a Christian yet, I wonder, what are you doing with your sin? Minimizing it, hiding it, trying to compensate for it. What are you doing with your guilt? Getting on Oprah.com, pretending guilt isn't guilt. Just entertaining yourself to death. You may have come here today miserable, but you don't have to leave that way. Psalm 130 and the New Testament show you the way. Christian, let us find fresh hope this morning. Let us soak all this in and sit under it with refreshment to remember that we were saved in order that we would walk before him in relationship and reverence, to remember that, yes, we still wait for him. He's coming again. He's not done yet. So watch, wait, hope in his word. And let us remember from Psalm 130 that hope and forgiveness and holy fear should, should be contagious. Shout it. Exalt in it. Tell others, with the Lord there's plentiful redemption. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter for how long. Plentiful redemption. All iniquities covered.